0: Why don't you open your Bibles to Hebrews 11, and we're going to go to page, it's page 1,754, 1,754, if you've got one of the brown Bibles. I want to read to you from verse 1, but we're really focusing on the paragraph after that, from verse 4 to 7, that's where our attention is going to be today. He introduces the first three characters in this whole chapter. The whole chapter is made up of different characters from the Old Testament, from the the time before Jesus of different people. But he introduces the first three, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and gives us kind of portraits of faith throughout the whole chapter. But here we have three that I hope we're going to sort of tie together some of the themes of what he's talking about today. And uh, so let's just read these verses to begin with. Hebrews 11, we'll read from verse one. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We're wanting to think over the coming months just a little bit about what faith is, why it's important. And something that you might have noticed when you've read Paul's letters to various churches is that on quite a lot of occasions, one of the things that he picks up on or points out is the faith that he sees in those churches. So let me just read to you a couple of verses just to show you what I'm talking about. In Romans 1, he writes them and says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he's writing to the Roman Christians and says, your faith is being talked about. Everyone's talking about how much faith you guys have in Rome. He says something similar to the guys in, 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 uh, in Colossae when he writes and says um, that we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. And I think that when he's doing this, I think that often Paul is saying a little bit more than just, you're Christians. I think he's saying a little bit more than, than that. I think he's commending them for the quality of their faith. Because as you and I know that there are churches and there are churches. There are Christians and there are Christians. There are places where you go and your faith seems to dry up and shrivel and suffer. And there are places where you go and it feels like people are so trusting, believing, and such a quality of faith in God. And I just want to ask you, why not here? Why not among us? I think we ought to all be wanting that individually, in our own walk with God, that we're people who, you know, just by your very decisions, by your daily habits, by your manner of life, you're declaring, even before you've said a word, you're declaring to people around you how much you trust God, that your faith and belief are in God, and I hope that you'll see just how comprehensive that is, how it touches every kind of decision that there is in life. Everything. There's nothing outside the scope of what we're talking about here. You want it for you as individuals. We also want it for us as a church because you think about it, I think what London needs, what the world needs, are more and, and better churches. Churches where the people in them express and shine to the world what it looks like to be people who believe in God Walk with him, trust him, express faith in him. So by, by continually just digging into this whole idea of what faith is, I'm wanting that to change in our hearts and wanting us to grow in this. And I hope that you can see how important that is. And we come today to one of the most central aspects of why this matters. And it has to do with the whole question of how in your walk with God, and it really is speaking to you as individuals today rather than us as a church together, but you in your own walk with God, how you can live in such a way as to please him. I think that ought to be the highest thing that Christians live for. You get this language just coming through in Hebrews 11, that by, by, the, by faith the people of old received their commendation. What does it mean to be commended? It means that God in some sense has put his stamp of approval on such people. He says it about Abel, that Abel offered this better sacrifice through which he was commended as righteous. He says it about Enoch, that Enoch was taken up and that before he was taken he was commended as having pleased God. And then he says without faith it is impossible to please him. So bound up with this whole thing of what it means to be a person who has faith and walks in faith and makes decisions in faith is this aspiration, this ambition, this desire that you be a person who lives for God's commendation, that he, he says that he's pleased with you. Some of you, that seems like an impossible thing because you feel like you walk under a constant sense of shame. I want you to understand today how much God loves to be pleased in his children. But obviously it is important how we live. Paul said this, he said that whether we're at home or away, and he meant whether we're with Jesus, we're dead, we're gone, we're in living in, in, in heaven, or whether we're away from him here on the earth, he says we make it our aim to please him. I find that fascinating. He's saying it doesn't matter whether you've, you're still alive or whether you've gone died and gone to be with him, your existence, from now to the rest of eternity, ought to be defined by one thing, a living to please God. And if that's true of us, if that's true of what central Christian desire, ambition and aim is, shouldn't we be asking the question, well, how? What is it that God delights in? What is it that he finds pleasure in when he looks on his people, on his children, on us, on you and me? And this is why this chapter is so helpful. Because all the way through, he approaches it from so many different angles. What different people look like in their effort to live according to faith. Because the simple answer to how you please God is you please him by your faith. It's faith that he takes pleasure in. This is why it's said in verse 2 that by faith the people of old received their commendation. It's why I think the central verse here is verse 6 here. It says, without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe. It's what faith is, right? Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The simple answer to how we live to please God is to live by faith. And suddenly we start to get all these portraits of what that looks like in all different types of conditions and situations and contexts. Which is brilliant because as we go through this chapter and look at all these characters, there's going to be a number of them that resonate deeply with what God's challenging you in. It may be a particular area where he wants to kind of take the Bunsen burner and put it under that part of your life and heat it up until it's burning hot and say, this is where you need to grow in your faith. But for others of you, it's going to be a completely different part of your life. So what we're doing when we're just looking at these characters is we're wanting to do that exact thing, kind of put the Bunsen burner onto different aspects of what it means to please God by faith. I'm totally confident that God's going to be speaking to you in different ways according to your situations So I want us to just consider each of these three guys first of all. Abel who teaches us about what worship looks like, the worship God loves. Uh, Enoch who teaches us about what it just means to walk with God and the kind of walking that God loves, walking by faith. And then Noah who teaches us about what the right kind of fear of God looks like, how God can take pleasure in a right Kind of fear of him. So those are the, that's what roughly where we're going. And then I want to bring it around at the end and talk about how faith is both the hardest way to live and the easiest way to live. But here, let's begin by just digging into Abel, first of all. What is Abel commended for? Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. If you've read the story, it comes right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4 on your page 6 in the brown ones. It comes right at the beginning. One of the things that you probably have thought, because I've often thought this, is just how unfair it seems. These two are both children of Adam and Eve, the first two men who lived after them, Abel and Cain. And they both come to God in worship. They both bring him a sacrifice of offering. But Genesis just tells us, quite simply, that God had uh, regard for Abel's offering. He liked it. He had no regard for Cain's offering. He didn't like it. And what's the difference here? Well, on the surface level, they offered different things. Abel offered animals from his flocks. Cain offered crops from his field. And you look at that and you think, well, they're both sacrificing. So why is it that God is only taking pleasure in the one of them? And, you know, the, 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 it looks on the surface of it like God just prefers meat. Which, just when you, when you take the Bible as a whole and you understand God's character, I just, I'm not at all sure that that is the, the lesson of, of Genesis 4. It's not that. In fact, when we come back into, into Hebrews 11, understand what's actually going on, he tells us quite simply that the reason why one guy's offering was better than the other is, is to do with the posture of their heart it was to do with what was going on in their heart, that one of them was offering his gift in faith and the other was not. Now I know this is going to throw up all kinds of questions about what exactly that means, but let me, let me just show you what I think, just to look at it negatively, I think it looks, it looks like this, that it's possible to be a person who, who does all the right kind of religious acts, the right devotion. And Cain was doing the right thing, he was bringing sacrifices to God. But God is not taking any pleasure in what he's doing. God had no regard. And that ought to be something deeply salutary to us. It ought to make us stop and think and consider before we engage in worship, before we engage in, in religious devotion to God, whether it's giving, whether it's prayer, whether it, whatever it is. I think it's possible that God can ignore and not pay attention to and not regard someone's devotion. And it seems to me that that's something that ought to make us pause and stop and think and consider. It ought to be salutary to us, shouldn't it? The reason, I think, when you, when you start to fit this into the bigger picture of what's happening with people who God is pleased with and who he's not pleased with through the Bible, is, is, is very simple. That God does not love hollow religion. That he doesn't love this kind of surface, shallow obedience that looks like the real thing, but is coming from the wrong posture of the heart. I think if we can infer and read in a little bit what was going on in Cain's life, I think it's possible to just understand that here was a guy who was kind of going through the motions, paying lip service to God through his offering. Maybe he was asking himself the question, well, what's enough to give to God so that he'll bless me and be pleased with me and I'll win his favor? And we know that Cain's heart wasn't right because the minute that he snubbed, and we don't know exactly what that felt like or how, how Cain experienced that, we just, it just tells us that he had regard for Abel's offering and no regard for Cain's. But as soon as Cain realized that somehow, the first thing he did was nurture a vengeful hate in his heart and go and kill his brother Abel. If you need any proof that that man was not offering sincere love and devotion and worship to God, there it is. That he easily just went out and killed his own brother. It's not a man whose heart is being changed by God. It's not a man who loves God. What God wants instead is worship that comes to him from a position of total faith, abandonment, trust. Trust. Isn't this what Jesus tells us we looked in so much care and detail what Jesus told us about real worship when he told us that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven it means that the first thing you have to do when you approach God is recognize your absolute need of him and the only way that you should approach him whether in worship or in prayer in your offerings like Abel did in bringing his animals It's through an absolute sense of your complete need for him, your bankruptcy without him, your emptiness if he doesn't deliver, if he is not there for you. We don't worship God as a means of manipulating him. Maybe that's what Cain was doing, as a means of kind of paying lip service so we can get his favor on our lives. We worship God because he is everything we need. And that's what Abel shows us about what real worship is, why his sacrifice was commended by God as righteous. And I just want to add to that, friends. You know, as Christians, we stand... You know, Abel had never heard of Jesus. I mean, he lived thousands of years before him. We are on the other side of the cross when God has given us a sacrifice in Jesus. So unlike Abel, we don't have to scratch around thinking, how do I offer to God a sacrifice that he will count as acceptable? As Christians, you come through Jesus. Jesus is your sacrifice and you become confident that God takes great pleasure, great delight in the gift of his own son. That's Abel. Let's look on. We want to think about Enoch. Enoch shows us something completely different. It tells us that by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Abel actually comes not far after... Sorry, Enoch comes not far after Abel in the story of the Bible. It's just actually on the next page in these Bibles, in chapter 5 of Genesis. And he's notable for how little it says about him in the story. He's a really mysterious figure. I can read to you the verses. This is basically the sum total of what we know about Enoch, apart from what he tells us in Hebrews there. It tells us, five, chapter 521, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. Don't ask me to explain the ages. We're not going there today. <laughs> and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, obviously there's something weird about this guy in that what he tells us is that he didn't die. Somehow, God took him, and he was gone, and that's it. And you know it's one of the weirdest stories like <laughs> but there's also something totally unremarkable about this guy, Enoch, which I think you need to just th- think about for a moment or two. Enoch is not commended for having done anything great in his life. Any great acts of faith? any notable thing that was worth writing down. There's nothing going on in this guy's life. And it challenges us immediately about our conceptions of what faith looks like. Because I think we tend to immediately think faith is doing very radical things for God. Faith is the friends that we have who've literally bought one-way tickets into other countries to go and serve people and share Jesus and do all that kind of stuff. Or faith is a person who gives everything that they have to God. Now, I don't want to downplay the importance of people who do you know, mighty acts of faith. And that's not an unimportant thing to notice. But, here we are. And this guy, we don't know anything about any radical acts he did in his life. The only thing we know about Enoch is that he walked with God. Why is that such an important thing? It tells us that God is interested in and takes pleasure in the steady, faithful, remember that word is faith, full, being full of faith, just walking steadily, steady, faithful, devoted person who walks with him. I take enormous encouragement from that. I said to you a few months ago how you know, we often, um, I think this is something that's bred in us in our culture, that we love radical living. We, we, we praise and, and people who live to extremes. But actually, you look at the Bible, and God's very interested in ordinary stuff. Day to day. The daily grind of what it means to live a life that is for God. I want us to just open up this a little bit more and just ask ourselves, well, what, is it, what does it mean in the Bible to walk with God? Because we're not really told, are we, what, what that meant for Enoch. But we can open it up a little bit when we understand the, the bigger context in Scripture. And I want to give you two answers to that. The one is this, and this is probably the more obvious one, that it, it means growing in love for him and communing with him on a daily basis. You know, the picture is of two people walking down the road together, sharing conversation, sharing life, on a journey together. And this is why here in chapter 11, but also all the way through the book of Hebrews, he keeps telling them to draw near to God. He said it there in verse 6, didn't he? He said, without faith it's impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Now that's not something that would necessarily look obvious to people from the outside. This is something that's very much between you and your maker. A person who knows and loves and wants to, to grow in their relationship with their God, with the one who made them, to draw near to him. And this is one of the things that I think we just ought to let register in our minds for a moment. Enoch was very, very special because he communed with God. It's special because I think when God looks around in the earth, he doesn't find many people who count that the most precious thing in life. It's true not only of Enoch. It's true also of Jesus, isn't it? There's many times in the Gospels when you're you're tracing through the story of Jesus and the way he lived and went about his ministry And he'd do remarkable, miraculous things. He'd do extraordinary things, things that demonstrated that God's favor was on him, that God was with him. But he'd also then retreat into quiet places to just commune with his father. You get things like this. He just fed the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. So one of the greatest miracles by any measure multiplying bread and fish. And then it just says, immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. In other words, he, he got rid of them. He, 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 he just he got them on a boat so that they wouldn't be with him anymore. He was just fed up of being with people, it seems. While well, he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus very deliberately gets himself into isolation. And he's still not isolated enough, because then it says, and after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. This is exactly what we're talking about with Enoch and here it is in the life of Jesus. I sometimes wish we knew a little bit more about what Jesus' devotional life looked like, but the trouble was, he did it alone. Which is why no one's written it down. (laughs) There he is, on his own, finding solitude. Finding comfort in walking with his Father in deep intimacy and communion. What does it mean to walk with God? It means growing in delight in your daily experience of talking to him and listening to him through his word, experiencing the intimacy of his Holy Spirit in your heart. That's one side of it. But here's the other side of it. This idea of walking with God is what they call a Hebraism, a Hebrew way of talking. And Paul uses it in Galatians 5. Some of you, your minds maybe went here straight away when we mentioned this. He says in Galatians 5, I say, walk, it's the same language, right? Walk by the Spirit. And you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. He goes on a bit later, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's exactly the same picture. He keeps reiterating. Guys, as Christians, your calling is to be somebody who, in your daily, moment by moment experience of your faith, is walking with God and with the Holy Spirit by whom we commune with the Father. He's living in us. He fills us. We hear his voice. We feel his nudgings. We feel the pressure he puts on our conscience. We experience the delight that he sheds God's love in our hearts. But it's not just about communion with God here. When Paul's saying here what it means to walk by the Spirit, he's very clear about what he means. And he says it's about being godly. This is is the whole paragraph where he talks about what the desires of the flesh are. And he starts listing all the things that war against God and war against your walk with God. And he he starts talking about things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, (coughs) anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he's saying things like these, but he's saying, you all know the stuff in your lives or the things you're tempted to, the ways in which you experience the pull away from God, the pull to no longer keep in step with the Spirit because for a little while you need to not be in step with Him in order to do that stuff. You need to very deliberately come out of sync with Him in order to indulge. But then he turns it around and says, no, but to keep in step with Him, to walk with the Spirit, to walk with God, is when God brings about things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in your life. And none of this is particularly marked by being extraordinarily standout, extraordinarily bold. It's just the very ordinary experience of being a person who grows more and more like Jesus on a day-to-day In your day to day life, Enoch walked with God, and his mighty faith in these very ordinary ways meant that God took him to go and be with him. And I love the fact that that's what God did for him. Because it's like saying that the thing Enoch most wanted in his life was to to know God more deeply, and God gave him his deepest wish by taking him out of this world to go and be with him permanently. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that exactly what Paul says when he says, I'm torn. I don't know whether to go and be with Christ or to keep living in the world and have fruitful labor for Christ. Which is better? I can't decide. Because my heart is so caught up with desire to know Jesus and to walk with him that honestly, death looks like a better option to me often than day-to-day experience of life. And we're not suicidal. We're not depressed. That's something that God ought to heal if ever you're in that place. It's rather that the prospect of being with Jesus is much, much better than any joy you can have in this life. This is exactly, again, what we see going on with Jesus in John 17. It's the long prayer that's recorded shortly before he's crucified. And he keeps saying the same expression in the prayer. He says, "I'm I'm coming to you, Father. Enoch walked with God and he was not. I'm coming to you, Father. I love this because it's got nothing to do with the kind of name and lights image of what Christianity can has often become. This sort of celebrity thing which is so in opposition to what God delights in. He, he loves people who treasure his presence on a day-to-day basis. Abel, who worshipped God with faith. Enoch, who walked with God in this ordinary way, but had an extraordinary experience of bypassing death. And then there's Noah. It says of Noah, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I'm sure you probably all know the story of Noah, but it's essentially that God looked around at the world and he just saw the wickedness of man which seemed to have reached an absolute peak. And he says, I'm going to start again. I'm going to flood the world. I'm going to wipe all of this out. But he found one man who says he was righteous, this guy Noah. So he decides, rather than just starting from scratch, he says, I'm going to start through that guy and his family. Restart through that guy and his family. So he tells Noah what his plan. And tells him to go and build this ark, this boat, in which he and his household and these animals could be saved. That's basically it. You all know it. But listen, the thing that's notable about Noah's faith is that it's not not really a positive faith. I think we tend to think about faith as something that is positive in terms of... People who attain the promises, that's the language that Hebrews often uses. People who, who, who grasp things, who, who inherit, who, who, who walk in God's, God's promises and go forward. And faith is often thought of in those positive terms, but for Noah, it was the very opposite. His faith in the unseen was about God's decision to judge the world. Something terrifying. Something deeply, it would seem, negative. We know he is a worshipper, like Abel. We know he walked with God like Enoch. But the thing that he's most commended for is his fear of God. That's what it says here. It says, In reverent fear constructed an ark. Noah's faith was expressed in his fear of God. And I think he stands here as a picture of what it's like for any person To become a Christian and to trust God for their salvation. Let me just draw some of the parallels for you. It always begins with a conviction that God has a plan to judge. God told Noah, I'm going to judge the world. But do you know he's also told you that he plans to judge this world, these people, you and me and everyone around us. A lot of us recoil in horror at the picture of judgment, but I I want to say to you, a world without judgment is a horrific thing. Where God never exercises justice. Where evil is left untouched. Anyone who is in that place begins with this, this same sense of reverent fear. Nobody becomes a Christian unless they feel something of this reverent fear of God. Next week when we baptize Warren, we'll get to hear a little bit of his story. I'm sure, I haven't really talked to him about this, but Warren, you're going to tell us a bit of your story. Okay, so I'll explain that to you later, all right? And you know, Warren, there's a positive aspect to faith, you know, putting a trust in Jesus, but there's also this this fear aspect. You say, what if I don't? What happens to me if, if I ignore everything God said about the future, about what it means to stand before him, about what it means to face him and give an account? What if I ignore all of that? And people who put their faith in God, like Noah, experience a reverent fear. But it's not a fear that drives you away from him. It's a fear that drives you to him. And here we get this, another parallel. That just as Noah built an ark in which he could be saved, so also to become a Christian is to find shelter in God. To say, if the storm is out there, If God is planning to set things to rights in the world and rightly condemn wickedness when he sees it everywhere, then the only safe place is to be near to God, not far away from him, ironically. And the safest place of all, for us as Christians, the ark itself is Jesus. The language of the New Testament is is that to to be a Christian is to be inside Christ in some spiritual sense. Is that true of you? Could you say of yourself that I am in Christ just as Noah stepped into the ark? I have stepped and laid hold of Jesus and I said, Jesus, I want you to save me. Another parallel you see is that Noah passes through water. It says he safely passed through the waters. It's by his faith. But also, the New Testament tells us that the waters that flooded the earth correspond to baptism For us as Christians. When we baptize Warren next week. God willing. What we're doing is. We're saying. Here's a picture. Of passing through the flood. And the flood. Can either kill you. Or it can start a new life. Anybody who's been baptized. Has said to God. I'm trusting you that you can bring me through the flood into a new life. And there's another parallel, that just as Noah, when the flood subsided, a new life began in the world. Crops began to sprout, animals began to multiply, and Noah and his family began to fill the earth. So also, when you become a Christian, the change is one from old to new. The old things have died and passed away. Sure, you're going to still experience the same kinds of temptations to a degree. You're still going to be drawn to the same things and you're going to experience something of the old life occasionally. But God has begun a new thing in you. Yeah. And it all starts with this faith, this fear of God. If you've been walking away from God, if you've been running from Him, it's right that you experience the kind of fear of Him if you've been toying with the idea of whether you even want to be a Christian, whether it's worth the sacrifice, whether it's worth the cost, it's right that you experience this reverent fear. This is where faith begins. You realize God made you, that he has a claim on your life. I want to... (laughs) just now paint for you a couple of pictures before we close and say on the one hand I think that faith is the hardest way to live as these guys show us but on the other hand I think they also show us that faith is the easiest way to live and I'm hoping that God will just excite you in your desire to live for him in this way let me just begin with some of the negatives faith is hard for a few reasons it's hard because first of all faith is not by sight You just think about these stories and the ones we're going to confront in the rest of this chapter. It's much easier in life to live by the things you see. For Abel, it's much easier, for example, to eat the animal rather than to offer it on an altar to give to God. It's right in front of you. It looks delicious. Maybe not so much when it's bleating and it's got fur on its back. But when you've killed it and skinned it and roasted it, then it looks delicious. Living by, by faith is, is recognizing that sometimes you, you, don't, you don't indulge in the things that you see by sight. Similarly for Enoch, you know, here he was, his whole life was marked by one thing. it's hanging out with his invisible friend. <laughs> this is why it requires faith. Because everyone around might be saying, God's not there. What are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? Why have you got this imaginary friend? Faith is taking hold of things that you don't see. Because you know in your heart they're true. Think about Noah. He devoted his life a hundred years building a boat in the middle of the desert. Seriously, this place is hundreds of miles away from sea. And you think, that's, he's living by faith and not by sight, isn't he? Because everything around him is saying there's never going to be a flood. There never has been. There never will be. But to live by faith is to live in the unseen. Which is why faith, of course, is not always easy. If it were easy, if it were natural, more people would do it. Here's another reason why faith is hard. It's because it's rare. Because it's unique. Because it stands out. It's a willingness to be different. You see it in these three stories. Here we are. It starts off, and you've got two brothers. 50% of the men in the world go the right way. 50% of the men in the world go the wrong way. Then it begins to narrow down a little bit more as we go on and read about Enoch, who lives a few generations later. He's the one guy you singled out in his whole generation as having walked with God. Then we move on, and we get to Noah a few chapters later. He is the only man with his family who God counts as righteous in the whole earth. Faith, by definition, makes you different, a bit weird, a bit standout. You know what? You ask yourself, you look around at your friends and your colleagues, you say, What's normal? What's the normal thing to do? What do I have to do to to be part of things and to go along with the crowd? Well, faith often asks you to do the very opposite unfortunately, which is awkward, which is, creates a tension in our hearts, which all of us experience on, in day-to-day life. You know, Who wants to be the standout weirdo in the office? Nobody wants to be weird for its own sake, unless you're a particularly cranky, odd sort of person. Most of us like being liked. We like fitting in. It's natural. It's human. But God allows you to experience this tension this cost, this, this element of, well, God's calling you to something unique here because he wants to know how much he's worth to you faith is hard then because it's not by sight because it's rare, because it's unique you know, I want to ask you does the idea of being different scare you? that's the tension point if it, if it does you need to acknowledge that before God and cry out for his help. It's also hard. It's the hardest way to live because it's so costly. You know, for Abel, it, it did lead to a more costly sacrifice. I don't think that's the most important thing about his sacrifice, but it was more costly to offer up an animal. And then it was m- more costly still because he, he died for his, his faith, really. Noah also had this costly obedience. It cost him in resources, in time, in energy, in effort, in ridicule and mockery. It's very costly to walk by faith. Because people do not understand it. And really on the surface of things, it often just doesn't make any sense. Which is why if you are somebody who has struggled to walk with God or it feels like you've just got this kind of tiny flicker of faith in your heart, or this lukewarm, apathetic way of of going about your Christian walk, I want to just sympathize with you and say, I understand, because faith is hard. The Bible doesn't paint a rosy picture of what it's like to walk by faith. It still tells you you need to, but there's this, this understanding. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be a tension in your heart. If there isn't, then probably you haven't understood it yet. But I also want to put it positively to you before we close and just say faith is also in many ways the easiest way to live, to truly live. Let me just explain to you what I mean. Here's one thing. The, the fact that God takes pleasure in our faith tells us that you don't have to be Perfect. When you read through this chapter, as we're going to, and we start looking at all these characters that God singles out as being so delighted in and commending because of their faith, one of the things that ought to strike you is that so many of them are very, very imperfect people. I mean, Noah himself, soon after the flood has subsides, gets drunk, passes out stark naked on the floor. One of his sons comes along and finds him and... Noah, when he comes around and gets sobers up, curses that son for the rest of his life and future generations after him. This guy is, is a flawed character. And he's just one example among the many that we're going to confront in the book of Hebrew, in this chapter in Hebrews. But I take huge comfort in that. Because if it's if it's our faith that God takes pleasure in, then it's not our perfection that he takes pleasure in. Sure, God's called us to godliness and holiness and, and some resemblance of Jesus. But friends, he doesn't tell us that it's your your perfect life that he takes pleasure in. He says it's your faith. You don't have to be perfect. Here's another reason why faith is easier. You don't have to learn a long list of rules. Now, here's one of the things you're going to notice. That for all these different people, faith is expressed in different ways in different circumstances. I mentioned it right at the start. But even just as we've begun this chapter, these three different guys, faith looks different for each of them. Faith is going to look different for each of us. Here's another reason why it's easier. You don't have to overcomplicate things. What do I mean? Well, these guys had no Bible to instruct them on the ways of God. It hadn't been written yet. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of the Scriptures. That would be dumb. But I am trying to say to you that sometimes it's the simplest things that the Bible tells us to do, but which are also the hardest to do. Faith is actually quite a straightforward thing. Jesus likens it to being like a child. You enter the kingdom, you have to become more childlike, not more sophisticated and smart and all that kind of stuff. He says you've got to become more childlike because children know what dependence looks like. You probably saw before we started worship, Seth crying because he couldn't find his mom for a second there. That's dependence. It's shameless desire saying when mom is not around, I'm going to cry until I find her. I'm going to scream my head off until she makes herself known. <laughs> and it's not, it's not a particularly complicated way of understanding what it means to walk with God, is it? It's just saying, God, I need you. I really need you. And God takes such delight, such pleasure in the simplest acts of devotion, a childlike dependence upon him. Faith is simple in that sense. It's also the easiest way to live because you don't have to deny your mind. What do I mean? Well, he told us here that without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must, firstly, believe that he exists. What I'm trying to say to you is, friends, when, when you've accepted that basic thing, walking by faith is really the most common sense way to live. If you've accepted that God's there, and most of us in this room have, I'm not assuming you all have, if you haven't, come and talk to me. Let's talk it over. But if you have, and most of us have, then the simple question is, well, how do I live in such a way that actually displays that that is a true fact? So you're not being asked to, to jettison your mind, jettison your, your thinking, and live a stupid life. You're being asked to live as though certain facts were real and true. Like God made you. Like He loves you. Like He's got promises for you. Like he tell, He's told you how He wants you to live. And that to obey him is the best thing you can do. And let me give you a final reason why I think faith in some ways can be the easiest way to live. Because you don't even have to deny all of your desires. He says you've got to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. (sighs) These guys in some ways, had to make, exercise kind of costly decisions, sacrificial decisions. But all of them made these choices because of what they could gain in the long run. And here's the great promise of what Christian faith looks like. It's always laying hold of greater gain because God is real, rather than lesser gain as though he's not. You think about Abel. He gave up his animals in sacrifice to God. Why? To get acceptance before God. You think about Enoch. He walked with God in daily sacrificial devotion to him. Why? To get intimacy with him. Something he counted more precious than anything else he had on earth. So much so that to leave earth and to go to be with God was better than to stay with everything that he had. And you think about Noah. He obeyed God, sure, in a costly way. It took him a long time. But he did it for what he could gain, that he could gain life. So friends, when I'm appealing to you, whether you're in a place where you're not a Christian and you need to become a Christian, whether you're someone who's been walking away from God and you need to come back and make the right decisions, or whether you're a person who's walking with God, but God's been challenging you about certain acts of faith and devotion that you need to do for his sake. Obedience. Wherever you are on that spectrum, I want to say to you, I'm not trying to put before you a worse option. I'm trying to put before you a better one. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, actually. It's saying this is actually the smartest, best option that fulfills your desires in life far more than anything else you could run after. What is it that God's speaking to you about today? Is it that God wants real worship from you? You've been going through the motions, doing your religious duty, but you know that God's smile is not on it. Maybe you've not been walking with him in the way that Noah shows us how to do. Maybe you haven't had the right fear of him such that you've made the decisions that would bring you to safety like Noah did. Friend, today, make up your mind. Walk by faith. Trust in him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, there are as many struggles and conflicts in this room as there are people. Probably more. There's not a one of us who comes to you today feeling like we've got it all together. There's not a one of us, Lord, who looks at our own lives and says, I really admire my faith. All of us, Lord, have fear. All of us experience temptation. All of us know the daily battle it is even just to walk with you in the simplest ways. All of us feel our weakness, and our frailty. All of us are challenged by these examples. And God, we're confessing this because, Lord, what we need above everything is for your Holy Spirit to move on our hearts to change us. That we be people who understand what faith looks like in our context and decide to live for you. And I pray, Lord God, that you will be doing very real transformations in people's hearts today and also as we're just working through this chapter that you would be nailing us (coughs) where we're coming short where we need to change where we need to repent where we need to exercise greater faith and devotion to you where you would take more pleasure in us where we to to trust you more Lord we thank you that it is your default to be pleased with your children because we're your children we're not your enemies anymore but God, I pray, show us what it looks like to have childlike faith. To go out of here just trusting you like a child would. Totally dependent on you. We love you, Lord. We want to say that. We love you. We thank you that you've called us to be your children. Amen. Keep working in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Yeah. Amen. Amen.